Welcome to another episode of Pilates Elephants. Great to be here with you. Today, we are going to discuss the topic of prenatal Pilates is just Pilates. And I'm here with my friend and colleague, Hayley Hawkins. Hey, Hayley. Hey, Ralph. How are you going? Yeah, awesome. Great to be here with you. How are you? Oh, I'm pretty awesome too, because I get to be here. <laughs> Long time listener, first time uh, visitor. <laughs> Um, so yeah, can you introduce yourself to the Pilates stratosphere, please? Sure. I'm Haley. I am a trainer for Breathe Education. I am about to be a mum of two. I'm also a registered nurse and a Pilates instructor in my free time. Okay. Um, and so what we're going to talk about today, like a lot of those things have a direct bearing on what we're going to talk about today, uh, which is Prenatal Pilates really is just Pilates with four simple considerations, uh, but there's an incredibly powerful mythology in the Pilates world that prenatal Pilates needs to be gentle, safe, highly modified, complicated, that you need some kind of PhD to you know, <laughs> work with pregnant women <laughs> or something, whereas really like it Basically, it could hardly be simpler if it tried. It It's just like teaching any other human being, like <laughs> really at the crux of it. You've got a person in front of you, you teach them movement. Um, there's somehow been this line drawn of, as you said, you need to be a PhD or, or almost like they're expecting Pilates instructors to be women's health physios when we're not, we're, we're Pilates instructors. Right. And, and, you know, so I want to get into like why that, you know, why we think and why we think that myth, you know, exists. Um, I'd love to hear your thoughts on that, but, and, and why it's not true, uh, um, presently. But firstly, you know, I'd like to just ask you about your Pilates practice because really the thing that, um, precipitated us having this conversation was, you know, you've been, practicing right through your pregnancy what are you now like eight months seven and a half months something like that i am nearly 37 weeks yeah so you're right up there <laughs> that's what they define as full term so 36 weeks plus is defined as full term so you're basically you're fully like gestated essentially um and right through your pregnancy you know i've been watching you on social media plus also in the master classes that you teach that breathe education, any tutorials that you teach, stuff. Just you know, hopping on a reformer and doing like swan dive when you're five months pregnant. Um, you know, high bridge. Uh, you know, all basically the full repertoire with a few simple modifications. Um, and I've also observed like a few kind of brain explosion emojis. You know, being um, posted in response to <laughs> your practice. Which, I mean, your practice when pregnant looks very, very similar to your practice when you're not pregnant um, uh, with a couple of, you know, s small, simple differences. So can you start off, please, by just telling the listeners about your Pilates practice and how that has, you know, like basically what is your Pilates practice, you know, and, and how is it, how has it evolved or if at all, you know, over the stages of your pregnancy? Sure. So... Yes, you're right. I'm still doing the OG moves. I did the full swan yesterday in a tutorial. <laughs> Just like, here we go. Um, 
So I think this time around my Pilates practice was exactly the same as my prior to being pregnant Pilates practice for a very long chunk of time. Um, I was still doing all of my instructor reformer classes, which is, yes, a lot of high bridge, a lot of walkovers, a lot of swan, a lot of that stuff, till late 20s. Um, in my 30s, the 30-plus weeks, things have slowed down a little bit, less comfortable in sort of those really deep extension shapes like walking over from the box to the back of the carriage. It's not happening anymore. Um, and full hundreds probably is not as comfortable, but, um, you know, I just, I think if I compare that to my first pregnancy, I was told to stop doing things at 13 weeks. So I look at what I have been able to do this time around in maintaining my practice, staying a part of my community, staying part of my groups made such a difference. So the, the thing that has really changed then for you in the last, you know, month or two, since you have slowed your practice down a little, is really just the comfort level because of your size, essentially. It's 100%. Like, it's so much of me that still wants to be able to do it, but there there is a comfort element in it that I just don't have the room or the space to do those things anymore. Hmm. And so I'm sure that people who are listening are dying to figure out or learn how you do swan on the long box when you're 30 weeks pregnant? Well, I've always maintained swan on the long box is about your placement on the box. (laughs) And if you get down low enough, then being pregnant doesn't stop you from doing the movement. You can still do the full thing, maybe just not as bendy as a non-pregnant person. (laughs) Right, so you position the edge of the box. When you say get down low enough, you mean position the edge of the box kind of midway down your th- upper thighs, right? Is that well, that's what you like down the thighs? So when you actually kind of fold forwards in the as you push out, you obviously don't you know lie totally flat on the box. You kind of drape around your belly a little bit, sort of rest on it like a little like a little prop. <laughs> <laughs> but you don't put your full weight on it, and then and then but then you can do the full expression of the extension phase of the swan. Yeah, the first time I saw that, I was like, oh, that's like, of course, what a simple solution. You just put the box further down your thighs. And I felt so guilty as an instructor of someone who, you know, I had always just gone, oh, well, you don't lie on your tummy. So all of these exercises had been out. And now that I'm playing around in my new body, I can go, yeah, I can do a rocking variation. You just hang off the front of the box and, yeah, you can do grasshopper. You just hang off the front of the box. Um, It's been really eye-opening. Have you gone with swimming? Found a solution for that yet? (laughs) Not a good one. (laughs) Not a good one. Um, I can imagine some kind of pregnancy massage table with a belly hole or something where you could do swimming, but uh, the setup would be prohibitively long. (laughs) Yes. So, all right. So essentially, I mean, you know, and if you're listening to this, uh, we'll pop some links to to Hayley doing some practice in the show notes, but you really should have a look because essentially you're doing what most, you know, just regular healthy adults, regardless of pregnancy status, would consider to be a pretty vigorous Pilates practice. Um, and you've made some 
you know, simple modifications to make it pregnancy friendly. But essentially, it's only in the last, you know, 10 weeks or so that you've had to stop doing certain exercises or, you know, modify them, you know, significantly. And that's simply because you've got this like massive beach ball, you know, of a midsection. Yeah. Totally. Um, they're just not comfortable anymore. And, you know, some days are a little bit different to others. Some days I can do a bigger backbend than other days. It's not, I'm not, not doing them because they're not safe, which is what I was originally told. I just avoiding them on days where they don't feel great. Yeah. And maybe it's like the baby sitting in a different position or whatever on, on any given day. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Got a lot of knees happening at the front. <laughs> so, so. You know, have you know how has the response been? Because you've been, uh, you know, you've been posting these workouts in public a fair bit. How's how's the response been? Generally, it's pretty good. Um, a lot of people, you know, saying it's so nice to see this. Um, there has been some negative comments, um, particularly when some of my posts have been posted by other people. Um, criticisms of that I'm promoting unsafe practice. There's been some reels made um, that have used me as a predominant example of people promoting unsafe practices in pregnancy, which hasn't felt great, but predominantly it's been very positive, which has been amazing. Mm. It's um, It kind of it mystifies me that people do that when they're not actually aware of what, the guidelines say about safety, you know, like it just, it's like, okay, well, if you're going to go to the trouble of singling out someone and saying, oh, look at this person, they're, they're bad and wrong. Um, like, wouldn't you go to the trouble of just checking? Like, I'm just going to just, just, I'm just going to make sure I'm actually correct on this before I like make a public fool of myself. Um, <laughs> yeah. I'm not sure. I'm not sure how that, that works in people's minds. And then I and then I mentioned something about, you know, if you're going to I did another post, you know, if you're going to promote prenatal safety culture, provide references or provide evidence to support your your thing. Um, yeah, it was a bit quiet after that. So um all right, so why do I mean so why do you think now the, I mean this is it's so interesting to me, this topic of pregnancy and and Pilates. Um, but sort of for a paradoxical reason, like I actually find prenatal Pilates to be one of the most boring topics in in the world, right? There's, there's nothing to talk about. It's like, it's just Pilates, you know? <laughs> um, but what what is fascinating to me about the topic is people's seemingly bottomless fascination with it. You know, like there's such a, a passionate degree of, of interest and, and pregnancy itself is a marvelous and wonderful, you know, miraculous process, right? But it's like the pres- the prescription or programming of exercise during pregnancy is like it's just dead fucking boring. It's like there's nothing to see here, folks. It's just another person. <laughs> Why do you think that we there is such a mythology and so much, so many people hold such strong views about this based on zero evidence or very, you know, lack of understanding of of what the guidelines say. I think it's a bit of a perfect storm. Like there are so many prenatal people in the world, like half the population. They're usually the ones that have a strong practice in some sort of fitness anyway, so they want to continue 
somewhere along the lines, the training schools got the role of a fitness or a movement facilitator and a women's health physio, or, you know, like a medical professional. The lines got blurred there and they haven't been untwined. So it's such an interesting topic to so many people because prenatal people are searching for classes and instructors are going, I don't know what to do with you because training school A said you can't do crunches or lie supine and training school B said you can't do anything that works your abdominals for fear of tearing your linear alba and training school said C said you can't do anything where you split your legs apart and it's just like <laughs> Which ironically all of those things I would argue are actually causing more harm and are more risky than just doing the things that they're warning against. Yeah. And it's creating this environment where prenatal people don't have anywhere to go because studios are saying, you can't come here after 13 weeks or you can't come here after 16 weeks. And so they're feeling like, well, I'm broken because I can't go to my studio. And I just think that's so wrong. And, you know, I want to read a little bit from a little passage from the current American uh, College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists uh, guidelines. And I think this is basically the same as what it says in the ACSM. Um, let me see if I can just open this up here. Here we go. All right. Uh, Physical act, so this is from uh, the current ACOG committee opinion, committee opinion number 804, physical activity and exercise during pregnancy and the postpartum period from the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists, 2021. Uh, so it says, quote, physical activity and exercise in pregnancy are associated with minimal risks and have been shown to benefit most women. Uh, although some modifications to exercise routines may be necessary because of normal anatomic and physiologic changes and fetal requirements. Um, and then the next paragraph, it says, women with uncomplicated pregnancies should be encouraged to engage in aerobic and strengthen conditioning exercises before, during, and after pregnancy, end quote. And, you know, so like, it doesn't get plainer than that. It's music to my ears. Yeah, no, it doesn't. I actually want to read a, a passage from the American College of Sports Medicine because uh, I'm getting all excited about uh, reading out. Guideline-based care. <laughs> yeah. Um, so where is pregnancy? Um, just have to look through my index here. It's not like post-it marked already with a big yellow post-it and a star sign on it. Well, I usually use the electronic copy. Um, uh, like back pain, pregnancy 186. All right. I used to know all of the all of the page numbers in the previous edition because when the previous edition was current, we used to teach in person. And so I used to be using my paper copy and all of our students would have a paper copy and I'd be like, okay, turn to page 184 for low back pain, right? But now the new editions come out and since we've been online and so I'm not, we're not physically holding the book. I'm just like, hey, here's a screenshot I took of the book. <laughs> so I've forgotten. Here's a slide of the important parts. Yeah, I've forgotten all the page numbers, or I haven't learned the page numbers for the new edition. Um, all right, so um, 
Pregnancy, ACSM, Guidelines for Exercise and Testing, Prescription 11th Edition, 2020, American College of Sports Medicine. Now you've got to find the bit that you want. Yeah. <laughs> it is reasonable to consider the physical and psychological benefits of physical activity and negative consequences of sedentary behaviour in non-pregnant women generally apply to pregnant women. So what that says is it's actually riskier to not exercise than it is to exercise. I'll read a couple more sentences from this um, same uh, passage. The health benefits of physical activity, oh, sorry, in consultation with a healthcare provider, healthy pregnant women without contraindications, when we'll talk about what those are a bit later, are encouraged to be physically active throughout pregnancy. Uh, the health benefits of physical activity are well recognized and can include prevention of excessive gestational weight gain and gestational diabetes mellitus, decreased risk of preeclampsia and urinary incontinence, improvement of mood, reduced incidence of low back pain and cesarean section, reduced length of labor, and maintenance and improvement or of cardiorespiratory fitness. In contrast, short and long-term risk associated with sedentary behavior are of concern. Right? So what they're saying here is like, it's actually riskier to not exercise than it is to exercise. It's like, oh, well, if you exercise, if you do abdominal work, you might, you know, you might tear the linear elbow. And firstly, I'm just going to want to say there's absolutely, precisely, totally zero evidence that that is a true fact. Like that is just a made up thing. But even if it were true, which it's not, but even if it were true, the risks of not doing abdominal exercises are far greater than the risks of doing abdominal exercises because everything comes with a risk. Everything comes with a risk. And I know which one, which band camp I'd sit on when I just wish when you just listed those things of gestational diabetes and preeclampsia and, and, and a little bit of possible tearing of my, I know which direction I'm going. Right. So, you know, gestational diabetes, preeclampsia, you know, preterm labor, you know, all of these things are potentially life-threatening for mother and baby, right? Whereas tearing of linear elbow, which is not a thing, right? Or, or, or sorry, which should I say more accurately, has there is pre absolutely zero evidence, not one skerrick of low-quality evidence anywhere that abdominal exercise increases risk of linear elbow tearing. In fact, the opposite abdominal exercise has been shown to decrease diastasis, um, we'll, and we'll get into that later. But even if it was true, which it's not, <laughs> it's like, well, okay, we're, we're, we're being safe from the made-up risk of tearing our linear alba, and in the process of that, we're increasing risk of gestational diabetes, preeclampsia, both of which you can die of, uh, preterm labor, cesarean section, um, um, poor mental health, you know, weight gain, like all of, you know, and what we could go on, there's been another 50 conditions that you would increase the risk of by not exercising during pregnancy. By being shunned from where you are used to practicing and being told that you're too difficult to, to work with. Yeah. Right. Right. And, and so then, you know, and so maybe, you know, dear listener, if you're thinking like, oh, well, no, I'm still promoting exercise, but, or, you know, maybe there are people out there who are still promoting exercise, but they're just saying, hey, don't do abdominal work, right? So it's, they're not saying, you know, it's not a do or don't exercise thing. It's like, hey, keep exercising, but just don't do abdominal work. But the thing is, what ends up happening a lot of the times with, with women, in my uh, observation, is 
you know, one of two things. One, like you said, Haley, they just get basically shunned from these classes and excluded because the instructors and the studios are so fearful of working with them because of all of these made up and imagined mythological risks that they end up like just not being able to find a class that they can do. Or if that's not the case, they get into a class and the instructor is still very fearful and basically, you know, puts them on like one red spring for their footwork and, you know, then a few mermaids and maybe just rest for a minute after that and, you know, maybe some arm work on a half spring, but don't go too far, you know. <laughs> uh, and that, so that if, even though they're like, okay, they're moving and they're holding the strap, it's like they're not actually getting anywhere near to stimulating a strengthening response in their muscles or, you know, raising their heart rate or, you know, challenging themselves physiologically in any way. So it's basically they're getting very, very minimal benefits, if any, from the very light, you know, super conservative exercise that they end up doing. They're getting some stretches. They're getting some really expensive stretches, um, but they're not getting exercise. They're not getting cardio or resistance training. I've actually observed multiple classes where the prenatal person has just been told to sit this one out. Just sit there for a minute, take a little moment while everyone else does this other thing. Like that's that would make me not want to pay and go back. I'm like, why am I paying you this much money to sit in a class and watch everyone else exercise? Right, and I'm you know, and I can imagine a situation like just I just imagine if I'm teaching a, a session, it's a fairly vigorous session. I've got someone in there that's like 33 weeks pregnant or something, and they've been going hard, and they're like, "Whew, I think I need a moment." I'm like, "Okay, great, sure, take a moment," you know. Oh yeah, totally, but not like I don't have an exercise for you. <laughs> just sit there. Uh, we've just done like arms in straps on the long box like five times in a row, and now I'm not sure what else to do. <laughs> so just sit there and breathe while we all do some ab work, and then we can come back together. Right. All right. So, I mean, I think that I, I agree with you on, you know, that there's there's a conflation, a smooshing a, of a confusion between the role of a Pilates instructor and the role of, say, a women's health physio or, you know, midwife or whatever in obstetric care of someone who's pregnant. And it's like our job as a Pilates instructor, it's like our job, we're not a health professional. Our job is just to give them a great workout, you know, just give them a great workout, you know. You, you, we're not here to. There's no, yeah. There's there's no kind of other mandate other than give them a great workout. Um, and I think that another thing that I think gets you know thrown into the mix. I think there's a lot of safety culture in general in Pilates, and that I mean I don't think that. I mean I'm absolutely completely convinced of that. Um. um and I think that because of the way that Pilates has been taught, you know, by and large, and, you know, if you, dear listener, if you've had a different experience to this, I'd love to hear from you. Click through the show notes, DM me on, on, on Instagram. But, you know, by and large, Pilates is taught, you know, over the last uh, maybe 20, 30 years as a very super detailed, you know, persnickety, perfectionist sort of a, you know, modality, right? Whether you learned classical or contemporary or, or whatever, it's like it's, there's so much detail and so much perfectionism. And I haven't seen any data on this, but I'd be shocked if there wasn't a higher incidence of perfectionism and anxiety amongst Pilates instructors than in the general population. I see that in our students when they start the journey, you know, you see it from their previous experience, yeah. 
Right. And if you're sitting there, dear listener, taking notes on this episode in your color-coded, you know, folder <laughs> and all of your margins are precisely 15 millimeters, <laughs> you know what we're talking about. Um, and, you know, and we love you. We love you for it. But, uh, and, you know, we've, we've both got a, a streak of that in ourselves as well. I'm just having flashbacks of my interview with you, Raf. Do you remember? And I showed you my color-coded photo. <laughs> like, look at all my Pilates shopping. Yeah. So we know what you're talking about. <laughs> right. So it's not a criticism, um, but it's just an observation that, and I think that because of that sort of personality trait that a lot of us have in Pilates, then when, you know, that kind of safety message gets, you know, emphasized and emphasized and emphasized within those trainings. It's like that real, you know, we really listen. We hold on to that. Yeah. Uh, and it becomes one of those things that we sort of, you know, wake at three o'clock in the morning, go, you know, oh, what if I did this exercise? Oh, I did this exercise tonight. What if I hurt someone, you know, and they come back tomorrow? And <laughs> so, yeah, I think, I think there's a lot of that. And I think because pregnancy is such an incredible thing, you know, like just the more, it's one of those things that, you know, the more you think about it, the more astounding and astonishing it is, you know, that this happens. <laughs> that, you know, you just think it's su such a miraculous, incredible, you know, process that it is kind of, there's kind of a reverence, and I think rightly so, attached attached to pregnancy, you know, and the process of of growing a human and creating a new human, which is so amazing. And so, you know, it's like really there's, you could, it's like, that's the meaning of life, right? That's what we're here for. And so there's, there's such, such a deep emotional kind of, you know, reverence and sense of, you know, wonder and, you know, respect for that whole process. It's like, oh, it's like if, if your grandmother lent you her best ever, you know, crystal decanter that she got for a wedding in 1946, right? And she's like, oh, there you go, darling, but make sure you don't break it. You'd be like, oh. <laughs> Not going anywhere. Yeah. And and so I think there's a sort of an element of that, that, you know, the, the awe, you know, of pregnancy and that whole process, which I think is, you know, rightful, <laughs> um, gets kind of, but it gets conflated with the fact, okay, it's a mis mystical, amazing miraculous process but it's like yeah but this woman's still got leg muscles and they still need to be worked yeah and i think when you talk about the anxiety of the instructor i think we've got to also look at the anxiety of the prenatal person because like you know you're never really sure like there's, there's things that can happen so there's a general level of anxiety that you hold once you find out you're pregnant all the way to the point where you have a baby at the end and because Pilates instructors, I think, never fully have confidence in the guidelines or, you know, particularly if they haven't been pregnant themselves, they pick up on the anxiety of the client and it's like twofold, you know. like It's a feedback loop. Yeah, and they can't reassure them because they don't have the confidence themselves and then they just lean into the anxiety of the person in front of them. I feel there's a bit of that. Yeah, what a great insight. So, yeah, and it's totally normal to feel anxious, particularly, I think, in your first pregnancy, I would imagine, because everything's unknown. You've never been through it before. Um, I imagine by the third or fourth time, you're like, oh, yeah. I'm definitely more relaxed this time around. <laughs> um, but I think, you know, with that first pregnancy, there's certainly more anxiety. And probably with every pregnancy, there's more anxiety than when you're not pregnant, you know, I imagine. And I think that's probably just a healthy physiological response like we know that there's increased sensitivity to pain 
during pregnancy and people have increased sensitivity to different foods and things. I think it's just a normal part of, yeah, you, there is a higher, um, it's not a higher risk, but there's, if, if, if you were, there's a higher cost if anything bad happens, you know, during pregnancy, you know? And so I think it is reasonable and natural for women to be, you know, have some kind of increased level of caution um, around lots of things, you know, food. Yeah. I can remember the first time it was like, no mayo, no coffee, like keep all that stuff away. And then this time I'm like, give me all the coffee and give me the mayonnaise. It'd be interesting to see if your your child grows up loving coffee and mayonnaise. <laughs> Hopefully not together, but you. Uh, well, who would have thought we had coffee with butter in it? <laughs> who thought of that? Anyway. Coffee with garlic aioli will be the next thing. It's a full meal for breakfast. Um, yeah. So, and I, and I, and I think also, you know, when you know a lot of women start exercise when they're pregnant because of that anxiety, and they think, oh, it's a great sort of it's a new beginning as well, pregnancy for a lot of people, and so it's like that's a great opportunity to adopt a healthy lifestyle, and so people are like, oh, great, I want to have the best pregnancy. I'm going to take all of the zinc, and I'm going to, you know, you know, do all, you know, renovate my house, and I'm going to start exercising and, and all of that. And so we get a lot of people with that kind of maybe first time nervous, you know, mums to be. And then, yeah, like you say, that is kind of that then, you know, we as instructors pick up on that anxiety. And because we don't have, you know, the, we don't have the confidence that what we know is, is, you know, true and that we know what we're doing and we you know, gun, this person's safe with us. It's like that it gets multiplied and reflected back to the woman. And that just creates a negative feedback loop where then like we each pick up on each other's anxiety. And yeah, no one, no one is the person, you know, no one is the person providing uh, certainty and calmness, you know. And so anybody who's, you know, when who's worked with people who are highly stressed in highly stressful situations will know that, you know, the more stressed that person is, the more relaxed you need to be, you know, when dealing with that person in order to de-escalate the situation. You know, if you match someone's anxiety with your own anxiety, it's not going anywhere good. It's, yeah, you're not getting a good outcome from that. What we need to see is that client with the anxiety met with the confidence of an instructor being like, I got you. Like, I know my guidelines. I know you're just a person. Let's do the thing. It's a bit like working with beginners. I know lots and lots of instructors that don't like working with beginners because they don't know what they're going to be able to do and they're not efficient in their layering. It's like, it's the same, it's the same thing in my mind. Yeah. A hundred percent. So, all right. So, how do we know that it's not true that, you know, prenatal Pilates needs to be gentle, safe, highly modified and complicated? How do we know that that's not true? I've got a couple of guidelines up my sleeve that tell me so, about five of them. Um, but also what I feel is happening in that, let's call it safety culture for lack of a better word, is we are modifying for clients with complications. We are modifying for clients that have pelvic floor issues or have had prolapse in the past or have pelvic dysfunction. Like we're modifying for all of those people, every single person that's pregnant. And it's just 
not what needs to happen because that's not every pregnant person's experience. Right. Yeah. So we 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 think about the edge cases, you know, the, the one in a thousand women who have a, you know, some kind of complication, some kind of serious medical complication. And it just like, it's like, you know, most of us are way more afraid of things like shark attacks than we need to be, you know, and we're way more afraid of flying, you know, than we need to be. And we're way less afraid of, say, driving in a car than we should be, you know, we should be very afraid of that. (laughs) It's way more dangerous. Or we should be very afraid of drinking sweetened uh, soft drinks, you know, (laughs) that's, that's much more dangerous than, than, than a shark attack. Yeah. Exactly. So, so we have this kind of, and that's just kind of a, a, a quirk of our human brain that we have this heuristic, this kind of rule of thumb. It's like, okay, when you think of something that's like a shark attack, that is like, okay, if a shark attacked you, that would be very, very bad, right? There's no, there's no happy ending to that scenario that doesn't involve you having massive bite marks somewhere. So, so we just have this like natural aversion to that. It's like heights as well. You know, we, we naturally don't like heights and that's built from the ancestral environment, but we don't have any, there's no like ancestral environment, you know, programming for us not to like, like sweetened soft drinks, you know, or, or traveling in a car. Like there's just no, we don't have an instinct of how dangerous that can be. And so I think it's, uh, you know, it's, yeah, we, we have these, fear outsized fear attached and we think of the edge cases or what if this woman has diabetes or what if she has you know whatever but it's like okay yeah but that woman shouldn't be in your class in the first place you know yeah it's uh, i think i think pelvic floor is a really good example of what we're talking about so many instructors out there get told that as soon as they have a prenatal client their class needs to accommodate or be working towards supporting someone's prenatal uh, pelvic floor when the truth is you don't know what's happening for that person you're not getting in there and doing an exam that is the role of a pelvic floor physio and if that person has issues there they should be seeing that person because you don't know the situation and what often happens is that people you know cue you to do more when that's not often the sensation or that's not often the problem and we're actually making the situation worse for the prenatal person Right. So that's an example of, you know, conf- like you said before, conflating the role of a Pilates instructor with the role of a women's health physio. And when we're thinking, well, yeah, what about people with pelvic floor insufficiency or whatever? It's like, well, they shouldn't be in your class. They should be at the women's health physio. Yeah. Or they should be seeing a women's health physio and coming to your class with the guidance that they're getting from their physio and putting it into place. It's not the instructor's role to be doing that because they're probably going to be queuing or doing the wrong thing anyway because they it's not their specialty their specialty is movement right and and you know we do have evidence that in order to effectively cue somebody uh, who has pelvic floor dysfunction urinary incontinence you actually have to do an internal exam and actually palpate the muscles and to, to know whether the woman is activating them, you know, too much, too little at the right time, at the wrong time, whatever it might be. And so it's like, well, there's, you don't know if you, if you're queuing a group of women in a Pilates session, it's like, there's no possible way you could know whether that woman is going to be made better, worse, or the same by that cue. Yeah. Most of the time they're going to be queued to activate and most people are over activating anyway. And so you're actually making the situation worse. 
actually making birth harder for that person. So, all right, so there are guidelines and I think that's a really useful frame of reference as well as like, yeah, okay, don't think about the edge cases. So in both of those uh, guideline uh, snippets I read out, I think it said, you know, women with uncomplicated pregnancies should be encouraged to exercise before, during and after pregnancy, essentially. And so what uh, they mean by that, um, uh, there are there's a list of, uh, you know, what they call contraindications to exercise in pregnancy or, um, you know, there's basically medical conditions that uh, if you have them, it's not considered an uncomplicated pregnancy. Uh, And I have them here in front of me as it happens. (laughs) Here's something I prepared earlier. Um, So... Or maybe I don't have them as handy as I thought I did. Um, Contraindications for exercise during pregnancy, according to the American College of Sports Medicine, uh, 2021, um, hemodynamically significant heart disease. Okay, so hemo means blood, dynamic is movement, so the movement of blood around your body. So hemodynamically significant heart disease means your heart is not moving blood around your body enough and that it's significant, right? So basically, you've got heart failure is what they would call that. Incompetent cervix, cervical insufficiency or cerclage, and that's basically where your cervix is essentially leaks and amniotic fluid, (laughs) okay, is potentially leaking out or just it's not uh, you know, the uterus is descending through the cervix, essentially. Uh, intrauterine growth restriction. Multiple gestation at risk for premature labor. Persistent second or third trimester bleeding. Placenta previa after 26 to 28 weeks of gestation. So placenta previa is where the placenta is over. Now, uh, I think it's where the placenta is over the, the cervix, partly. Is that correct? Do you know, Hayley? I'm not a hundred percent sure, but I'm just going to quickly Google it. I'm pretty sure that's it. it's basically. I think it's where the placenta is basically, you know, attached to some, you know, the not the normal um, part of the uterine lining. Placenta previa. Uh, placenta previa is a problem during pregnancy when the placenta com- completely or partially covers the opening of the cervix. There you go. There you go. It was fun. If the placenta is covering the cervix, uh, after 26 weeks of gestation, preeclampsia or pregnancy-induced hypertension. So preeclampsia is a life-threatening condition that is a sequelae, so like something that follows from uh, hypertension, so high blood pressure during pregnancy. And basically, women can spontaneously bleed and bleed out very easily because the blood pressure goes through the roof. And uh, during labor, especially, obviously, there's real decent chance of bleeding because you're ripping the placenta out of the um, uterine, uterine lining. Um, so yeah, that's that's very very significant. Um, uh, premature labour during the current pregnancy, restrictive lung disease, ruptured membranes, severe anemia, uncontrolled or poorly controlled hypertension, which is high blood pressure, uncontrolled thyroid disease, uncontrolled type one diabetes. So this is not not just type one diabetes, but uncontrolled. Like, say, you've, you know, you're having, like, fainting episodes because of low blood sugar or high blood sugar or whatever it might be. 
um, unexplained persistent vaginal bleeding, such as in second or third trimester. Like, all right, so that's a that's a that's a complete list of the absolute contraindications to exercise in pregnancy, according to the ACSM. Now, I think if you're listening, you probably would have you'd probably consider all of those to be serious medical conditions, right? They're like, oh fuck, you know, I've got that. That's bad. Okay, this is not like. Right. This is not like garden variety backache or, you know, I've got a touch of the flu or, I've, you know, my elbow's been hurting. I'm not sure why, you know, this is not pelvic pain. This, this is, these are serious medical conditions, right? So if you don't have one of these, it's considered an uncomplicated pregnancy. Now there are, there are some there are some relative contraindications as well, which are, so absolute contraindications are if you have one of those, you shouldn't be exercising in a group setting. You should be working with directly with an allied health professional, you know, like a women's health physio or an exercise physiologist or something like that. Relative contraindications are you, uh, you know, you maybe, you'd probably need to modify, significantly modify exercise. So anemia or symptomatic anemia, cervical dilation, chronic bronchitis, uh, eating disorder, extreme morbid obesity, heavy smoker, um, spontaneous history of spontaneous preterm birth, premature labor, miscarriage or fetal growth restriction, malnutrition or extreme underweight, mild or moderate cardiovascular disease, orthopedic limitations, poorly controlled seizure disorder, poorly controlled type 1 diabetes, recurrent pregnancy loss, un- unevaluated maternal cardiac arrhythmia, other significant medical conditions. So those are the relative contraindications. So if you don't have any of those or any absolute contraindications, I mean, all of those are pretty serious. Things as well, yeah. Yeah, it's not like you've got a, got a bit of a sore back or something. Um, and so if you don't have any of those, that's considered an uncomplicated pregnancy. And what the ACSM and, the a- and ACOG both say is that for a healthy woman with an uncomplicated pregnancy, the risks of not exercising far outweigh the risks of exercising, and that women should be encouraged to exercise before, during, and after pregnancy. Yeah, 100%. It's like it, it couldn't be any clearer why we should be empowering prenatal people to move. It shouldn't be any clearer why we should make prenatal, you know, training courses just like not even a thing. We should just be giving everyone a set of the guidelines and being like, here's what you do off you go and do them. So, yeah, it, well, one, once you read the guidelines and once you read a few different sets of guidelines and realise they all basically say the same thing, you know, there are a few minor variations like ACSM says no prolonged supine after 15 weeks or 14 weeks or something, whereas... I think they're at 13 now, yeah. They've, they've upped the ante. <laughs> mm. they've, they've gone a bit further. Yeah, the weeks is the biggest variance. Uh, ACSM is 13, ACOG is 20, I think RANCOG is uh, 16, and the Department of Health is 28. But the general rule is the same. We're avoiding maintaining a supine position at a certain point in person's pregnancy. And maybe the easier way to look at that is when the person is no longer comfortable. So sometime between the start of second trimester and the start of third trimester, that's when you should stop. Uh, you should avoid prolonged supine work. So, you know, you can do, say, shoulder bridge where your butt touches the floor for like one second in between reps, right? But don't do 100 followed by, you know, the series of five, you know, 
<laughs> don't pro don't program a ten minute supine sequence, perhaps. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then there's so that's that's one of the four things we need to, you know, take into consideration, which is sometime depending on which guidelines you want to look at, is sometime between thirteen weeks, which is the start of trimester two, and twenty eight weeks, which is yeah, roughly quite kind of sort of the start of trimester three. Um that we should avoid prolonged supine exercise. Um, and so for that, you know, you can still do a little bit, you know, for a few seconds, or you can just figure out an alternate way to work your abs, you know, do planks or, you know, sideline ab work or. So many ways you can work your abs. <laughs> or you could just prop them up, like whack a bolster under their ribs sort of thing. Um all right, so what are the other what are the other things we need to be aware of? Uh, I think this next one I usually go to is pretty straightforward. We want to avoid any blunt force trauma, or basically, if we're looking at it in a Pilates context, avoid falling, avoid falling on your tummy. Right. So if we were, you know, in a broader context, we'd say avoid things like you know playing soccer, um, where someone might kick a ball into your belly. Um, maybe avoid skydiving, um, horse riding. Um, those types of things. But uh, given that we're Pilates instructors, um, it's like avoid, you know, standing on the reformer in a side splits with a light spring on. Yeah, yeah. Or, you know, um, doing some crazy handstandy things on a light spring or, you know, have a really light spring on and you're facing towards the foot bar. Like let's start in a low kneel. Let's just consider our options, but we still so many things we can do in a Pilates class that don't involve those things. I did a whole class on it this morning, if you want to <laughs> check it out. And so, uh, yeah, what do you do, you know, when everyone's doing side splits? You know, what does the pregnant woman do? Or, or even better question, how do you program your class so that instead of everyone doing side splits and you're giving a different modification to that woman, how do you just give everyone something that is pregnancy-friendly but you don't go, hey, everyone, it's pregnancy-friendly? Yeah, that would be my preference. I really want to get everybody doing the same thing. So do some side stuff from the floor. Have one foot on the floor and one foot on the reformer. Do your side splits, do your squats, do your skaters. Works beautifully. You can have a box if you need to. Um, there's lots of other ways where you can do those sorts of lunges, like using the back of the reformer or standing next to the reformer and doing it with some straps. Mm. All right. So avoid, uh, avoid prolonged supine after somewhere between second and third trimester. Avoid essentially falling. Okay. So no side splits on a light spring and probably like clean up that freaking BOSU off the floor. Don't leave it lying. Put your hand weights underneath your reformer. Yeah. All of that stuff. Um, uh, what's, the, what's, the, what's the next one? The next one that often gets a bit confused, I think, in my mind, is keeping people cool and hydrated. Ah, uh, yeah. All right. So this is a, rec a guideline recommendation in all the guidelines, avoid overheating and stay hydrated. How do you think this gets confused? I think the avoid overheating in particular gets conflated to don't let your client get their heart rate up. Don't let them get a little bit hot and sweaty. It's like, oh, no, you have to stay cool. Like there is a nuance in that, yes. Yeah, and I think it, you know, I stick my hand up because I feel like I've probably been guilty of not conveying that nuance very well and just assuming that people would 
make sense of it. Uh, and so recently, the last couple of months, uh, you know, fairly recently taught the prenatal uh, sequence in the diploma and I made sure that we kind of distinguish between, okay, well, actually the, the reason for that recommendation of avoid overheating is because um, ra- significantly raising the body temperature, in particularly in first trimester, has been associated with increased rate of neural tube defects, defects so things that re- result in um, conditions like spina bifida. Um, and so that is a genuine you know, consideration that we have to be aware of. But when they talk about you know raising body temperature, what they're talking about is v- significantly you know, hot environments, like basically women doing, you know, manual labor in the desert, you know, or working in a you know, tin shed in the middle of summer. Yeah. Or doing Bikram yoga where you're in like a 36 degree studio working out for 90 minutes. Yeah. And, and the, 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 the right, the increase in body temperature that occurs with exercise when exercise is in a roughly thermoneutral environment, so in other words, where the the, te- the outside temperature is roughly equivalent to the the body temperature, the the increase in in body temperature that occurs in that situation is not, you know, probably anywhere near enough to, you know, be cause any kind of risk, you know, in terms of um, neural tube defects. Um, so, and I just want to. Uh, See, I'll just read you out a passage in relation to this from ACOG. Um, <coughs> excuse me. It says, temperature regulation is highly dependent on hydration and environmental conditions. So that's like how hydrated you are and also the temperature in the outside world. During exercise, pregnant women should stay well hydrated, wear loose-fitting clothing, and avoid high heat and humidity to protect against heat stress, particularly particularly during the first trimester. Although exposure to heat from sources such as hot tubs, saunas, or fever has been associated with an increased risk of neural tube defects, exercise would not be expected to increase core body temperature into the range of concern. At least one study found no association between exercise and neural tube defects. So what that's saying is when you exercise, so if you're in an air-conditioned Pilates studio doing some mermaids or even doing some jump board work, um, you might get a bit red and sweaty, um, but that is the, the amount the, that your core body temperature is going to rise is nowhere near the zone of danger where you would get if you hopped into a hot bath and soaked there for half an hour, where basically it's impossible for you to shed heat because the environment is more is higher temperature than your internal environment. So you're actually taking on heat from the environment. Whereas in a Pilates class, as long as you're wearing loose-fitting clothing that allows you to shed heat and you're well hydrated, and the temperature in the room is you know roughly kind of sorta body temperature, you know thereabouts. It's like there's no, it's very unlikely, uh, and there's no evidence that exercise can cause any kind of increase in body temperature into any danger zone. So, and in fact, we've got lots of uh, case studies of women running marathons and things, you know, when eight months pregnant. So, you know, like I don't think a bit of jump board's going to. No, I don't, I don't think a little red a little red flush, flushed face is going to be. <laughs> The end of the world. And there's actually, ACOG actually, oh, I think it was, maybe it's both of them, actually talk about intensity of exercise, don't they? So there's a recommendation there. So it's like people get confused with this, keep them cool and hydrated as 
don't let them get sweaty or work up anything and keep them having breaks all the time when actually we're, we're confusing core temperature and neural neural defects with intensity of exercise, which are different things. Yeah, so I'm just going to, you're exactly right, Haley. I'm just going to read that quote that you just alluded to from ACOG, uh, which says, quote, vigorous intensity exercise completed into the third trimester appears to be safe for most healthy pregnancies, end quote. <laughs> so <laughs> you don't need to worry. And and when ACOG talks about vigorous intensity exercise, they mean like running up a sand dune, you know, like. Yeah, not me doing some cardio jumps on my reformer box, which got some people upset. Um, all right, so that's three. The first one is avoid prolonged supine from you know first, sorry, from end of first to end of second trimester, somewhere in that range. You know, start of second, start of third trimester. Uh, avoid risk of blunt trauma to the abdomen. So, in other words, avoid things where there's a, a risk of falling. Um, and then the third one is stay well hydrated and maintain. You know, don't overheat, but that really, I think, should be like avoid exercising in a hot or humid environment is probably a better. Yes, much clearer. Yeah, definitely. Um, so definitely no hot Pilates, no hot yoga. Um, if it's the middle of summer and the air conditioning is broken, probably don't go to class today. Yeah, or a class in the middle of the park on a 40 degree day. Right, but if you're in an air-conditioned Pilates studio and you're dressed, you know, sensibly, there's basically nothing you could do that would elevate your body temperature, you know, dangerously. So just go for gold. All right, and what's the fourth? What's the fourth thing we need to think about? Fourth thing that we need to think about, which I don't specifically think is applicable just to prenatal clients. I think it's applicable to everybody. Is comfort. So. For example, there's nothing in the three that you've mentioned so far that says that I can't lie on my tummy, but pulling straps, plow and tea, probably not on the menu at the moment. You haven't figured out a way to just put the middle of your thighs on the box? and <laughs> I haven't yet and have my arms floating in space. No, I haven't worked that one out. Um, yeah. I, and I like, that, I like that there's nuance to comfort. I like that we don't have to just say prenatal people shouldn't lie on their tummy because I have been enjoying exploring, you know, where my limits are and where I can make those things work. But I do think it's a really valid consideration, but it's also a valid consideration for people with larger chests that don't like lying on their tummy or breastfeeding people that don't like lying on their tummy, you know, like it's just look at the person in front of you. Right. Well, sometimes – Men in swan dive. Ah, yes. There's a comfort issue. Yeah. <laughs> That's why it's much better on the ladder barrel, in my experience. Um, yeah, and I think, so the the thing that we're, the three that we've mentioned, you know, uh, avoid prolonged supine from sort of start of second trimester, maybe start of third trimester, somewhere in there. Let's say, I'm going to say 20 weeks because that's, I like the ACOG guidelines, they're my favourite ones. Um uh, of avoid uh, risk of falling in play studio environment, uh, stay hydrated and don't exercise in hot or humid environment. Okay, so those are the the considerations that are listed in ACOG. Now, ACSM has a, f- a further one, which is avoid the Valsalva maneuver and breath holding. Uh, ACOG doesn't specify that. And it's, inter- it's interesting to me that's like, okay, well, what about the, you know, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of pregnant women who've been following the ACOG guidelines and haven't died 
you know. <laughs> so maybe the Balsalva thing isn't such a big isn't such a big deal. Um, uh, but aside from that, there are no other modifications. Right, so there are those kind of contraindications that we talked about: hemodynamically significant heart disease, etc. Okay, uh, and then there are those three considerations, is what they call them uh, in in the guidelines: the supine, the hydration slash hot human environment, and the risk of falling. And aside from that, that's it. There are no other considerations. That's it. And so the comfort one is not even in the guidelines. We just added it. We're like, okay, well, probably some people aren't going to enjoy doing the roll-up or the roll-over when they're 36-week pregnant. Probably some people aren't going to enjoy doing, like, swimming, you know, whatever. But it's like, but and there will be some people who don't enjoy some things, but other people will be totally fine, totally fine with those things. Exactly. And I think that's I think that's where some of this other discussion comes from of, like, well, all prenatal people shouldn't do lunges or single leg work. It's like, well, Why? <laughs> why there is nothing to support that some people have discomfort later term in their pregnancy with that in which case what do you do if somebody has discomfort in kneeling or what do you do if somebody has discomfort on their wrists yeah you reduce the range of motion reduce the load or just pick a different exercise but we don't need to limit every single person from doing that because some people have discomfort Right, and I think that that particular one, that lunges, and I'd probably throw in uh, side splits, get thrown into that basket as well. Um, there's a fear around stretching, and I know that in some trainings uh, that is emphasised that, you know, you shouldn't stretch uh, pregnant clients, particularly for side splits and front splits because of relaxing. Um, and, there's a, and there's a myth that there's a higher risk of injury. Um, in that situation and that the pain is because of pelvic instability and there's quite a quite a bunch quite a bit of evidence that that is not true now like we know that relaxing levels uh, during pregnancy don't correlate with pelvic pain you know pelvic pain's a thing relaxing's a thing but that you know some women have more or less of one and not of the other um, we know that the 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 laxity of the of the symphys sorry of the uh, sacroiliac joint doesn't correlate with pelvic pain um, but asymmetric laxity of the sacroiliac joint does correlate with an increased chance of pelvic pain. So there's something in there around asymmetry, and maybe that's the brain interpreting the asymmetry uh, as like um, you know getting a kind of a um, a mismatch between the, the perceptions of the positional sense of the pelvis and interpreting that as danger. You know, um, and it, it can't it you know doesn't make sense that it's the laxity of the joint causing like a, a risk there because like, well, if that joint's lax and it hurts, but the other one's not lax and doesn't hurt, but what if the other one was equally lax, then they don't hurt, right? So how does the other one being lax make the first one being lax less dangerous? You know, <laughs> that doesn't make sense. <laughs> it's like if, you, if your left tire is bald, how does the right tire being bald make that, you know, more safe? <laughs> So, so the the the, and there's we've got a bunch of other other evidence around, um, you know, correlation with straight leg raise or lack of correlation with straight leg straight leg raise, uh, and also just um, postnatal women who have been diagnosed with persistent pelvic pain and pel quote pelvic instability end quote, and then just whacking them in X-ray machines and X-raying their pelvis and finding out that basically they've got absolutely zero or less than one degree of movement 
you know, like 0.2 degrees of movement or something like that in the sacroiliac joint on the quote loose side. Um, so it's, yeah, so pelvic pain is a real thing. And if people have pain in lunging or splitting or whatever, it's like, well, just do what you would do if it was a footballer who had pain with lunging or splitting. Just go, well, why don't we give you a bit more support there? Okay. Why don't we reduce the range of motion? Why don't we shorten the lever? And if none of those things work, why don't we just give you different exercise? Exactly. Exactly. It's, I love your example of, you know, a sports person with an injury. They like, you just tailor the program to what they need. And it, they're pretty simple options, like, particularly from a reformer. You got springs, you got range, you can just change it up. Um, we don't need to be avoiding these things or putting the fear of God in instructors that they can't be teaching these things because they can. Right. And um, if you read through, which I know you have, the ACSM guidelines and the ACOG guidelines, and you read every single word, and this is what we do in the diplomas, we read through the entire, every single word of the guidelines. And then we say, oh, so, you know, where does it say don't do the splits? And it's like, well, it doesn't say that anywhere. You know, <laughs> it's not mentioned. Um, in the ACSM guidelines, um, it does, in fact, uh, meant, recommend um, what they call the FIT guidelines, the frequency, intensity, time, and type of exercise that uh, pregnant women should do. And uh, what they say is, quote, the general principles of exercise prescription apply to adults of all ages. Um, sorry, I'm reading from the older adults there. Sorry, pregnancy. Um, exercise prescription. In the absence of obstetric or medical complications, so that's those are the things we read out before contraindications, the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists recommend 20 to 30 minutes a day of moderate intensity aerobic exercise on most or all days of the week during pregnancy. Exercise recommendations for pregnant women should be modified according to the woman's prior exercise history, as well as symptoms, discomforts, and abilities across pregnancy time course with consideration of absolute and relative contraindications. So that's just what we said, right? So like, if it hurts, try doing a bit smaller movement or, you know, making the load a bit easier or dropping your knee or whatever. And if that's really a problem, just pick a different movement. But apart from that, just yeah, modify based on exercise history. So if, the, if she's strong and fit, it's like, great, give her the f exercise appropriate for a strong and fit person. You know, if she's a beginner, give her exercise appropriate for a beginner, not a pregnant beginner. <laughs> not a pregnant beginner, just a beginner. Right. Um, uh, there was this. I always think about this now. I can't help. I can't help it. It's just a, like a, a thought loop that happens in my mind. I saw this when the the, the gay the whole gay marriage thing was was going on a couple of years back, and you know there was a lot of um, agitation and and activism to get you know, gay marriage legalized. Um, someone there was a skit I saw. It was like, oh, you know, gay marriage, or as we like to call it, marriage. You know, it's like it's just it's just marriage, right? It's just marriage, <laughs> and it's like, yeah. Prenatal exercise, or as we like to call it, exercise. You know, it's just exercise. It's just exercise. I'd love to focus in and, and talk for a moment, if we can, about what you just said about if they're a beginner, they're a beginner client. If they're an advanced client, they're an advanced client. 
But what I've heard so often is beginner clients that have found out that they're pregnant and they've gone into a space because they've been told that exercise is good for them and they've been sent away because they've never done Pilates before. Can we talk about that? Yeah. All right. So why do you want to talk about that? I just, it just stuck out to me when you said that. Like if they're a beginner, treat them like a beginner. If they're advanced, treat them like they're advanced. But I've heard so many instances of beginner prenatal clients being turned away from even starting because they're beginners. And it's like, well, why can't we just treat them like a beginner? Because if we're treating them like a person and exercise is good at all stages of pregnancy. Yeah. Well, what do the guidelines say on this point, Hayley? <laughs> oh, you're going to make me bring them up. Um, my, I can't read it because it's not in front of me, but exercise should be started gradually, but it's not to be avoided. Yeah. Lisa, I have got it in front of me. <laughs> I knew you would. <laughs> the ACOG guidelines say pregnancy is an ideal time for maintaining or adopting a healthy lifestyle. What a, it's a great time to start exercise. Let's not send them away. Let's bring them in. <laughs> um, physic, this is again from ACOG. Quote, physical activity and exercise in pregnancy are associated with minimal risks and have been shown to benefit most women, although some modifications to exercise routines may be necessary because of normal anatomic and physiological changes and fetal requirements. Now, sidebar, we know we just said what those are, right? Those modifications. Avoid soup by not prolonged supine after 20 weeks if you're following the ACOG guidelines, uh, avoid risk of falling, avoid uh, exercising in hot and humid environments, maintain hydration. Right? Those, are the, those are the modifications <laughs> that we have to make, right? So uh, modifications to exercise routines may be necessary because of the normal anatomic and physiological changes in pregnancy and in pregnancy and fetal requirements. Back to the ACOG guidelines. Quote, in the absence of obstetrical medical complications or contraindications, which we read out what they were, physical activity in pregnancy is safe and desirable, and pregnant women should be encouraged to continue or initiate safe physical activities. End quote. Now, I just want to, before we go on with this, I want to go, when they say safe physical activities, Box one, this is again ACOG, quote, examples of exercises that have been extensively studied in pregnancy and found to be safe and beneficial. Walking, stationary cycling, aerobic exercise, dancing, resistance exercises, e.g. using weights, elastic bands, stretching exercises, hydrotherapy, water aerobics, end quote. So they are, they are exercise, example of exercises that have been extensively studied in pregnancy and found to be safe and beneficial direct quote from ACOG, including resistance exercises and stretching exercises. They were the two that I wanted to talk about. It's like we're encouraging people to stretch and pick up heavy things. <laughs> right. Um, and in uh, ACSM, in the, the, fit require, uh, the fit recommendations uh, for exercise um, during pregnancy, they recommend stretching. They recommend stretching uh, within those guidelines. Flexibility training, I'm now quoting from the ACSM, two or more days per week, stretch to the point of feeling tightness or slight discomfort, hold for 30 to 60 seconds, um, do, do any type of physical activities that maintain or increase flexibility using slow movements that terminate in static stretches for each muscle group rather than rapid ballistic movements. 
So that is end quote. That is from the ACSM on what you should do when you're pregnant in terms of stretching. So stretch two or more days per week to the point of mild discomfort and hold it for 30, 60 seconds. Yeah. <laughs> so nothing to see here, folks. Just go on about your business. Just teach your Pilates class. Right. And so if I come in and I'm 25 weeks pregnant and I've got quite a bump there and I'm, I say, you know what, Haley, I'm not really feeling the old swimming today or maybe the double leg kick, you know, I don't feel comfortable to do that. Maybe like I know roll up, I don't feel comfortable to do because in the end position, I feel kind of all crunched up, you know, over my tummy, maybe roll over. I'm not crazy about, I feel like suffocated. Um, uh, you know, there's probably a few other exercises that I might not enjoy as much now that I'm the late second trimester, you know, what, what do you do in that situation? A, panic. <laughs> panic and run out of the room. Oh, I can't do this. Um, what we've just been speaking about. Like if your client is prepared enough to come in and go, I don't, I don't feel comfortable doing these exercises, awesome. We won't do those. We'll do the other 31 exercises that you do feel comfortable doing. Or if they don't know at that point and you're running your class and gets to something and it's like, well, this doesn't feel great for me exactly the things that you just said before. Great. If we're on a reformer, can we change the springs? If we're doing that or reformer, can we make the movement smaller? If that really still doesn't work, let's do something else. But most of the time, those first two will cover what you need to do. Right. And there are a couple of get out of jail free cards. Like you can do most things sideline instead, you know, like hundreds or double leg kick or whatever, you know, you can do kind of a wonky version of those things sideline. Uh, you can prop people up you know, with a bolster under their shoulders, you know, so they're not supine anymore. Um, you know, there, there are lots of things you can do. And there's just one or two exercises like the rollover. Okay, that kind of sucks. There's not really a fun way of doing it when you're 30 weeks pregnant, I imagine. So it's like, let's just not do the rollover today, folks, you know. I don't know. I'm a bit of a sicko. I still love it. It's just a prop under the butt. I'm like, yeah, I'm happy. Um, and so how would you know at the start of class, just say that the woman comes in and she doesn't have a pre-written list of exercises that she's not comfortable doing, <laughs> like most clients, I imagine, right? And so she's just there and she's like, oh, it's, you know, my first day in class, you know, or I've, I've been doing classes, but I haven't done your class before or, or whatever, uh, you know, and you're just like, huh, okay, well, I had this class planned, you know, I'm not sure if I didn't specifically plan it to be prenatal friendly. Um, what do you do in that situation? Oh, first and foremost, like, let's check in with the person. Like, welcome. <laughs> How are you feeling? And what most people, well, my experience is most people want to overshare when you ask them how they're feeling. Oh, I'm great, but, like, I just don't feel good doing this and this. And you go, okay, cool. And you've got that information to plan your class. But I also think it's not a bad idea to just have a prenatal class programmed that doesn't involve any supine, it doesn't involve any crazy overhead stuff that you can pull out if you've got a surprise prenatal client and nobody needs to know it's a prenatal client. Your ab work's done in supine. Your butt work's done in sideline with a bit of standing, you know. There's so many wonderful exercises that we can do that are appropriate for everyone that you can layer up to serious spice if you want to that just don't involve lying on your tummy. So when you said the ad work's done in supine, did you mean in prone? Like oh, sorry, I did. I meant four-point kneeling. So, yeah, I love that concept, and we've talked about that on the show before, about having a prenatal-friendly class that just, just happens to not have any supine or prone work in it, but it, you don't call it a prenatal class. You don't say, hey, everyone, this is vegan 
beef, it's not real beef, you know, what do you like? You just say, hey, here's your burger, you know. And then afterwards, they're like, oh, that was an awesome burger. And you're like, yeah, it was, wasn't it? You know, and it's like, they don't need to know it was prenatal friendly. Um, but at the end of the day, it wasn't even a prenatal class. It was a Pilates class that didn't involve Sufine. You know, and it, like we're calling it a Pilates, a prenatal Pilates class, but it was just a Pilates class. Right. Well, I actually deliberately called it a prenatal friendly class because it's not, I wouldn't class it as a, like, we might be doing like hella push ups and squats and whatever. Right. But it's just like we happen to not do any prone work, you know, and, and that's what makes it prenatal friendly in my mind. Yeah. I just kind of wanted to make that distinction because I feel particularly when I talk to other instructors that work at studios, they're like, oh, we're, we're running particular prenatal classes and I don't know what to program for it. And they don't know how to program for prenatal people. And it's like, well, let's just lose that for a minute. What does a class look like if it doesn't have any prone or supine in it? there's your class and teach that to everybody and you can teach that outside of your special prenatal classes if you want to. Yeah. And I actually, like, I've got mixed feelings about special prenatal classes. Um, Just as a business owner, like, we used to run them when I had my studio and it's they're kind of feast or famine because what happens is all the women eventually, they come to full term, they give birth and then they, they stay home right? A lot of them don't come back straight away because we were in the CBD. So people didn't live near us. So they came to work in the CBD while they were pregnant. And then they went on maternity leave when they were like eight months. And they come to a few classes after that because they were like swanning around, you know, not doing much. But then once they give birth, it's like, well, they're living out in the suburbs. And the the last thing they're going to do is travel into the city. It's like, what the heck are they going to do with the baby? All of that. So it's like, basically the class fills up, but then it empties out. And then you have to find a whole bunch of new clients. It's like, oh, crap. Whereas if you just accommodate those people within a regular class setting, it's like it's not an issue in my experience. Where do you sit on that whole thing? I couldn't agree more. I think that the idea of having prenatal specific classes is that you are different from everybody else. You can't go to a normal class because you need special attention and special programming. And I think it goes against everything that we've just spoken about today. It's just, I mean, and what do you do in these prenatal classes? Hold on, we just did push-ups and squats and yep. (laughs) Um, Okay. So what advice do you have for people, you know, who are you know, maybe listening to this and, you know, nodding their heads furiously and banging the card dashboard, yes, yes, <laughs> but then they have to coexist in a world, whether they maybe work with a coworker or an employer, or maybe it's just, you know, people on social media or the people in their, I don't know, their, their, like their, 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 um, people that they were trained by, you know, the training, the original training that they did, you know, taught them a certain thing and they're still holding on to that textbook at home because it got kind of like, oh, I held on to my textbooks from my play certification for ages. They had kind of sentimental value, you know, to all that. There's a scribble I wrote when so-and-so told me that cue or whatever. Um, yeah. So what, what advice do you have to people, for people basically who, you know, are working hard to become fearless in their prenatal teaching or maybe are already there, but are struggling with just the amount of fear-based, you know, bullshit basically that is being thrown by probably well-meaning people 
from all ang- all sides. You know, the hand grenades are coming from all all angles. Being attacked from everywhere. Yeah, and and not necessarily being attacked directly, but I mean, like, just there's a lot of negative messaging around prenatal Pilates and a lot of fear based messaging. And, you know, even if it's not directed at someone specifically, but it's just like it's in the water, you know, it's kind of like it's, it's, yeah. So what, what advice do you have for people who have to work within that sort of ecosystem? I guess something that I picked up from listening to a podcast with you actually is when there are those conversations to be had, I try and make them as open as I can. So rather than come in with, this is why I'm doing what I'm doing. It's would you like to engage in a conversation about this? Um, so I use the guidelines quite heavily. I actually have a copy printed when I teach in class that I take with me. <laughs> and, um, and I've been using that a lot on Instagram as well. People that have, you know, um, I wasn't even doing a very heavy ab sequence. I was doing a quite light curl up sequence. And, um, the comments on there was, you know, Quite full on in terms of she is going to give herself a hernia. Doesn't she know anything about um, working with prenatal clients? Doesn't she know that you're not supposed to be doing any ab work, well, any curl up work with prenatal clients? Was just, I love that you brought that to the table so we could have a conversation about it. Would you be willing to talk about why I'm doing the things that I'm doing? And um, I have found that to be quite helpful. It's interesting that you mentioned um ab curls and the i would say hysteria that surrounds ab curls in pregnancy and even postpartum for women with diastasis um it's like just about the most controversial thing you can say i think in pilates is like it's safe to do ab curls in pregnancy you know it's like that seems like such an innocuous thing to say or planks planks are pretty yeah sorry go Planks are up there too. Planks are up there too. Yeah, you're right. I've done a few plank series and people have been like, she shouldn't be doing that. Huh. It's so interesting, isn't it? And it's like people, we get back to what we said at the start, people have such strongly held views based on no evidence. You know, the evidence being like, oh, that's what my teacher taught me when I was in my Pilates course or some weekend certification. But it's like, well, did they show you the guidelines? Obviously not, because if they had, then you would have noticed that that's not part of what the guidelines say. In fact, I'm just going to read from the ACOG guidelines, quote, abdominal strengthening exercises, including abdominal crunch exercises, um, have been shown to decrease the incidence of diastasis recti abdominis and decrease the interrectus distance. That's the distance between the left and the right halves of the rectus abdominis muscle or the, the width of the linear alba, in other words. Um, in women who gave birth vaginally or by cesarean birth. So abdominal strengthening exercises, including abdominal crunch exercises. <laughs> um, yeah. So, and, and yet then we have this kind of mass kind of insanity of people just almost throwing tantrums, you know, <laughs> about people doing a crunch. <laughs> And I mean, I've I've observed it from thirteen weeks. Like people have been like, "Oh no, you can't do it." Like some people aren't even visibly pregnant at thirteen weeks. Why are we saying you can't, you can't do any of this now? It's just it blows my mind. Yeah, and there's it's like it's it's one of those things where it's 
yeah, I mean, I, I, we don't I, we don't have time to do a whole conversation about diastasis and ab curls, but there's just next interview, next one. Like, there's just it's like again, if you've read the guidelines, like it it's not it's not a thing. In fact, it's the opposite. Like, what research we do have on abdominal strengthening during, before, and after pregnancy unanimously shows that exercise and particular abdominal exercise, including abdominal curl exercises, reduce the incidence and the severity of diastasis. Like there is absolutely 0.000 studies showing that abdominal crunches, you know, increase the risk or severity of diastasis. None, zero, zip. Yeah. And I like to link it back to what you said at the beginning, like when you look like there's risks to everything, is the risk of I'm possibly maybe going to have some diastasis after birth, which you pretty much have anyway, like. You do, 100% of women, yeah. I'm not going to go to my classes anymore. I can't find anywhere to go. I've been sent to a clinical one-on-one session that I cannot afford to attend. I'm just not going to do anything. And then you fall into the sedentary category. Like it just. It doesn't make sense to me that we're so hysterical down this end. You go to class and you, you're moving but so slowly and with so little load that you still fall into the sedentary category. All for the sake of doing a little bit of crunchy. Uh, is there anything else you'd like to add before we finish up? No, I think I think we've covered everything that I, that I hoped that we would. Um, it's just Pilates. It's not <laughs> Pilates. It's just Pilates. There's so many things that you can do that just work for a whole class that just happen to suit a prenatal client. They don't have to be prenatal specific. And just like with any other human being, if you've got severe discomfort, change it until it's comfortable. Right. So just program your class, just like a normal class, not a prenatal class, just program a class. Cross out all the supine exercises and all the prone exercises and replace them with side-lying, standing, kneeling, or quadruped exercises. Bam. There's your, <laughs> there's your prenatal class. And stop thinking you need a PhD to be a Pilates instructor. There's people that do that. All right. It's just exercise, people. Yeah. All right. Good talk, Hayley. Thanks for having me, Ra. After two exercise science degrees and over a decade and a half of reading research daily, I've condensed all the current science on rehab into a program called the Clinical Exercise Specialist Rehabilitation. Inside the program, I'll teach you to do three things. One, deeply understand how the body works. Two, confidently and expertly rehab literally any client. And three, get results for your clients. So ultimately, your clients tell their friends and you become known as the go-to expert in your area. This program is completely unlike any education you've done before, even if you've studied with us before, because of the way we've built the learning design. It's an online, flexible, skill-based learning program, which means You keep doing the skills under supervision until you're good at them. It's more of a mentorship model than a traditional course model. So 
rather than rushing through the content and having sort of one go at everything, you actually just practice live and we give you feedback and guidance and we dialogue and explore concepts together until you're highly skilled and confident. We just keep working the material until you get it. It's not rushed at all. It's not about ticking off the content. It's about engaging, practicing and applying it until you own it. This is a life-changing program, not some weekend certification. I've put my heart and soul into building this, and I can't wait to share it with you and help you discover your genius for anatomy and rehab. Now, because of the highly interactive nature of this program, we're only taking on 12 students worldwide. The program starts on March the 1st, and the first 12 qualified people to apply will be allowed to enroll. So if you're interested in learning more, click the link in the show notes and download the course guide or go to breathe-education.com and click on the clinical certification menu in uh, link in the top menu. That's breathe-education.com and click on the clinical certification link in the top menu.